So I, I realized my kind of my favorite three shows, and, and even characters I'm attracted to in movies right now, um, but whether it's Walter White in Breaking Bad, you know, the sort of um, chemistry teacher turned meth mogul, or whether it's Don Draper of Mad Men, who's this brilliant but sort of self-absorbed and self-destructive advertising executive, or, um, or even Francis Underwood of House of Cards, who's this kind of power-hungry, do-anything-to-get-power congressman. I mean, all of these guys uh, are are anti-heroes. They're characters that are the lead characters in a story, um, but that they are, are not people that you would want to be like. And, and most of these shows are, are extremely popular. There's some other anti-heroes up there. You got your Michael Scott um, and, and some others there. Uh, you got your little Captain Jack Sparrow um, as well. So anti-heroes are, are popular today in our culture. And the American Heritage Dictionary defines an anti-hero this way. It says, it's a main character in a dramatic or narrative work who is characterized by a lack of traditional heroic qualities, such as idealism or courage. Um, And all of these anti-hero shows are written written in such a way that you find yourself both loving and hating the character um, at the same time. You you can't believe that that you're rooting for this person, and and yet you do really want them to succeed at what they're doing, even if it's something totally wrong and evil. And I think that one of the reasons I'm drawn to these anti-heroes is they're, they're part of me that relates to an anti-hero. I mean, I think part of the reason these shows are popular in our culture today is that I think sometimes we can relate more to an anti-hero than we can a hero. Um, and, and plus, at least we can point to these people and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Um, and so this morning, we're going to look at what is perhaps the story of the greatest anti-hero in the Bible, uh, Samson. And as we look at Samson, there's one thing in this story that I don't want us to miss, one thing that I want us to be absolutely clear about, And that is this, that who God uses always says more about him than it does about them. So who God uses always says more about him than them. And we're going to see, despite a hopeful beginning, that Samson is a wreck. And he would feel right at home with Don Draper or Walter White or Francis Underwood. He would feel right at home with these guys. Samson is a selfish arrogant, womanizing trickster. And and that's really just the first two chapters of his story. Um, One thing that Samson is not is the hero of this story. He is not the hero of the story. God is the hero. And who God uses, who God is able to use, always says more about him and about how great he is than about how great they are. So who God uses says more about him than them. And so this morning as we look at Samson's story, we're going to see that who God reveals, who God uses reveals that he is in control, that who God uses reveals his patience, and that who God uses reveals his severe mercy. So who God uses reveals his control, his patience, and his severe mercy. So who God uses reveals first that he is in control, that he is the one who is in control. So first, who God reuses reveals that he's in control. Samson's story is found in the book of Judges, and this is our only message out of the book of Judges following along and open here. It's in Judges 13 through 16. We don't have time to read all of Samson's story this morning, but those of you who are following along in open here, you are reading this whole story, or or maybe you've even read it all by this point on Sunday. And so we're just going to kind of walk through Samson's story this morning and point out a key, a few key verses along the way. And to summarize the story. So I want to begin by looking at Judges chapter 13. And I want to read you the first three verses of the chapter. This is how Samson's story begins. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 
And there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And an angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So verse 1 highlights the pattern that occurs over and over again in the book of Judges, that Israel disobeys God, he sends them into the hands of their enemies, Israel cries out to God for help as they're being oppressed, and then he raises up a judge, a leader to rescue them. And these leaders are called judges in the book of Judges, that's where the, the name comes from. But really a better translation of this word judges is probably something more like warlord, So these guys aren't necessarily doing the work that we typically think of of a judge sort of sitting in a courtroom making decisions about legal cases. These guys are sort of warlords who rule over part of Israel. You see, where we left off last week with Joshua, Joshua was the leader of a unified Israel. He was the closest thing that Israel had ever really had to a king. He was the unified leader of a unified nation going into the promised land. But now at this point, after Joshua dies... No one leader is raised up to lead the people. And the nation fragments and degenerates into the cycle of disobedience, punishment, and then rescue. Now, none of these rulers, these kings that God, or these judges rather, that God raises up, ever sort of unify Israel. They never end up ruling over all of Israel. I actually have a map, I think, here. You can kind of see, this is just part of it, but they only ever rule over kind of a part. There's a red area there pointing to where Samson, he doesn't control all of Israel. He just has a small area of influence, and the judges kind of overlap at times. So at this point in Israel's history, there's no unity. Um, It's just these small areas where the judges are ruling um, from time to time when God raises them up to deliver his people um, after they've cried out. And Samson is the last judge in the book of Judges, and he's probably also arguably the worst of the judges. But his story doesn't start off that way. Actually, his story starts off hopeful. In fact, even miraculous. Samson's parents have been unable to conceive. I mean, this is a theme we've seen all along, whether it was with Abraham or again with Isaac and Rebecca. We've heard this story before. There's a woman, a man, they can't conceive, and then an angel appears to them one day. And I love this. The angel appears only to uh, Manoah's wife, and we don't even know her name. Her name isn't given, but she's working in the field one day, and, uh, and the angel of the Lord appears to her, and he says, you're going to conceive and bear a son. And so she immediately goes and tells Manoah, but you kind of get the sense reading the text that he doesn't really believe her. Uh, kind of like, and I mean, honestly, you know, or an angel, really? I mean, I, I'd be skeptical too, probably. So Manoah actually has enough faith, though, to pray. He prays and asks the angel to come back. And I don't know how, how realistic he thought this was, or it was kind of like sarcastic. He was just like, you know, God... You know, if there was actually an angel, go ahead and send him back. I don't know. Um, so he prays, and he says, we'll send this angel back so we know how to raise the son that we're going to supposedly have. And actually, the angel does show up again. He reappears, and he explains that the son they're going to have is going to be used by God to rescue Israel from the Philistines. And moreover, he is to be set apart from the moment of his birth to the moment of his death, as a Nazarite. Now this is key because Nazarite was normally something only people did for like a short period of time. But Samson was supposed to be this Nazarite for his whole life. So, so what is a Nazarite? Well, a Nazarite was someone who abstained from strong drink or anything that came from the fruit of the vine, who didn't cut their hair, and who didn't have any contact with anything dead. So that was kind of what a Nazarite was about. 
And Samson was going to supposed to be this kind of Nazarite for the entirety of his life. And nine months after the angel visits Manoah's wife, she gives birth to a son, and they name him Samson. And now this part of the Samson story, the story of his birth, reminds us that who God uses reveals that he is in control. And this is a dark time in Israel's history, and yet God is still at work. He is sovereignly, even miraculously providing leaders for his people. Leaders who, in his wisdom and his foresight, he knows that Samson is going to fail big time in lots of ways. And yet, he still chooses to use him. And I think this should give us great hope as we look at leaders in our government, in our workplaces, in our culture. Because whether you're sitting here this morning and you're more excited about the majority party in the House of Representatives or the majority party in the Senate, or you're just fed up with all of them, I mean, at this point, probably, like, who isn't a little bit fed up with them? Um, God is in control. He is not out of control. Who he chooses to use reveals that he is in control. So your boss, no matter how much of a manipulative jerk he or she may be, isn't there by accident, isn't there outside of God's plans or purposes. But remember, who God uses says more about who he is than about who they are. Who God uses reveals that he is control, is in control even when things seem utterly out of control. So do we really believe that this morning? Do we really trust that God is the one in control? That he can use people, even people who are deeply flawed, who are disobedient, who we disagree with, who may, may even think are evil, to bring about his good will? Do you believe that God is at work even when it seems like he isn't? The story of Samson also reminds us that good beginnings don't guarantee good endings. And so let's look at Samson's life where we see that what and who God uses reveals his patience. So we read in 1325, the end of chapter 13, this is right as Samson's about to start his life. It says, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. So the first thing we see Samson doing, though, is, is not something that you would think about that the Spirit is bringing about. The first thing we see Samson do in chapter 14 is demand a Philistine wife. And this is not just, this is not just where the story starts to get weird. Um, I mean, the story has been a little weird all along. Actually, I mean, he had an angel announce his birth and all that. But the story starts to get really weird right here because Samson goes down to a village of Timnah, this village of Timnah, and he walks in, and this is a Philistine village, and he sees this woman, and he says, I want her. I'm, this is the, the woman that I want. Um, and he runs back to his parents, basically, and he says, hey, I found a wife. I want to marry this girl. And now his parents immediately protest. You can almost, I can almost hear this kind of Jewish mother talking, Samson, you know, why can't you just marry one of the nice Israelite girls here in our village? Why do you got to run after the Philistines? But Samson says, no. Literally, the text says, get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. Now, this sort of impulsiveness and lack of self-control and refusal to listen to others are all themes that are going to dominate and ultimately ruin Samson. And yet God is patient with him. Yet God still continues to use him. So notice verse 14.4, and I love this. We get this little window. It says, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. Now this doesn't mean that Samson's lust for a Philistine woman was from the Lord, but it means that God was even able to use Samson's selfishness and lustfulness to somehow advance his work. Remember, who God uses says more about him than them. Samson determined to marry this Philistine woman, heads to Timnah again. 
And while he's on the road back to this Philistine village, suddenly a lion appears on the path. And immediately the spirit of the Lord rushes on Samson. And even though Samson has no weapons, he, in this power of the spirit of the Lord, I don't fully understand what's going on, but he grabs this lion and he just tears it to pieces, the text says. Um, but he says, the text says he doesn't tell anyone about this. Now, given what Samson is like in the rest of the story, this is actually kind of surprising. Like, why does—he's kind of boastful and arrogant throughout the story, but he doesn't tell anyone that he killed the lion. Why is this? I think it's because he's not actually supposed to touch anything dead. Remember, he's that Nazarite vow. So he's killed this lion, and later on he's going back from his village, and he finds the carcass of the lion. Now, most of us, I think we see a dead, rotting carcass of a lion laying there on the road. We're probably going to sort of get away from it. But Samson's like, oh, maybe there's something I can eat in here. And he sees that the bees have made a hive in the carcass of the lion, and there's honey inside of this dead lion. He's like, hey, I'm hungry. I need a snack. And so he goes and he gets the honey out of the lion. Again, remember, he's not supposed to touch dead things. Maybe it kind of slides with, you know, lions trying to kill him. But this thing's really dead. It's not hurting him at all. Um, and he still chooses to touch it. So, so much for this Nazarite vow thing. So he eats the honey out of the lion. And now, back, fast forward in the story a little bit here, the time for the wedding has arrived. And Samson um, is basically having his bachelor party, and we see this in verse 1410. And the word, it says they're having a feast. But the Hebrew word there specifically means a drinking party. This is kind of a frat party. This is a, a bachelor party. People are drinking, partying. Again, so much for that vow that Samson wasn't supposed to do the wine or the fruit of the vine. Anyway, he threw that totally out the window. And at, this, at the party, Samson's feeling good. And uh, he's drinking a lot, and he says, hey, I'm going to make you a bet. I'm going to go to my drinking buddies and say, if you can figure out this riddle that I'm going to tell you, then, then I, will, I will give you 30 sets of clothes. But, but if you can't figure it out, then you owe me 30 sets of clothes. So you can kind of see him all around the table like, yeah, come on, all right, great. And so Samson tells them this, widow, this riddle, and they can't figure it out. And days are passing. It's getting close to the time when, when they're supposed to have the answer. And so they go to Samson's future wife, and they convince her to find out the answer from Samson. So she goes to Samson, and she starts crying and begging him. And the text little says she's crying kind of at his feet. Samson, tell me, tell me the answer to the riddle. And so immediately he finally gives in, and he says, okay, as, as soon as he tells her, she immediately goes and tells the others. And when they go to Samson and they give him the answer to the riddle, he realizes that he's been duped. You know, a bet is a bet, and Samson says, I'm going to bring you the clothes that he owes them. Um, but Samson doesn't go down to the kind of the local J.C. Penney and, and pick out 30 suits from the men's department. Um, rather, he goes out and he finds 30 Philistines, murders them, and then takes their clothes. So, again, kind of wait, why is this the guy we call a hero in Sunday school? I mean, don't we, who, if you grew up in church, right, you probably heard the story of Samson, and you probably didn't hear the part about him murdering 30 people to take their, their clothes. So now while Samson is off on his murderous shopping trip, um, his wife that he was going to marry is actually married off to his best man. I mean, I think they figured Samson probably isn't going to want her after what she did, um, but actually they figured wrong. And so when Samson comes back, he actually does want his wife, so kind of like, oops. I kind of feel like Samson's a little bit like Bruce Banner. You wouldn't really like him when he's angry. And, uh, and actually the text says in 1419 that he's white hot with anger when he finds out that his wife has been married off to his best man. So what does Samson do? 
I mean, he does what any of us would do, right? He heads home, rounds up 300 foxes, uh, ties their tails together with a torch in between them, lights it on fire, and sends these foxes off into the Philistine fields uh, filled with grain and burns down all of their harvest. I mean, seems like a reasonable response, right? Um, But remember, who God uses says more about him than them. When the Philistines find out what has happened and that Samson is the one who burned down all of their fields, they actually, this is just the time of the judges, they actually go and they burn uh, his wife to death. And after a brief altercation with them, Samson runs and hides out in this cliff, in a cave, in these cliffs. And here's where the story begins to take an even more unexpected turn. The Israelites who are, again, they're being oppressed by the Philistines. Samson's supposed to be the one who's saving them from the Philistines. But they actually go to, they find Samson. They seek him out. 3,000 of the, of the Israelites go, and they find Samson in the rock, and they say, look, you can't do this kind of stuff. The Philistines are going to kill us. You can't be offending them and upsetting them like this. So they basically say, look, you, don't you realize they are our bosses? They rule over us. We're going to hand you over to them because you're making our lives worse. So at this point, Israel is basically so messed up that they don't even really want to be rescued. They didn't even want to be delivered. I mean, this was the set purpose for which Samson was raised up back in 13, was to deliver God's people from the Philistines. But they don't even want to be delivered. And Samson's response is, okay, you can tie me up and give them to me. Just, just don't kill me yourselves. Let, let me take my own shot with them. And just as the prisoner transfer is about to be completed, again, the Spirit of the Lord rushes on Samson. And he breaks free of the ropes, like they're just like burnt twine. He snaps them off, and he finds this jawbone of a donkey laying on the ground. He grabs it, and then he single-handedly kills a thousand Philistines in this moment, just slaughters them. And I love this. After he finishes off a thousand Philistines in sort of a single blow, he sings a little song about it, and then he realizes, I'm dying of thirst. And I mean, let's be honest, after killing a thousand dudes with a jawbone, I mean, you're probably a little thirsty. And, uh, but again, Samson, he's so thirsty, and he gets angry, and he does something right here that he only does one other time in the book, in his story. And he prays. He prays. He cries out to God, and he says, God, basically, he's so demanding throughout this entire story. He's like, God, look, you used me to kill all these Philistines. Now are you going to let me die of thirst? And God, in his great patience, doesn't just ignore Samson, but he hears his prayer, and he opens a place in the ground. Again, this almost sounds like Moses, and he opens a place in the ground, and water comes out, and he gets a drink, and he lives. But again, God answers Samson's prayer, not because of how great Samson is, not because Samson's doing anything wonderful, because of how great and patient and merciful God is. And so I think we're starting to see That Samson isn't exactly the kind of character that you'd want to make into an action figure for your kids to play with, right? I mean, this isn't exactly sort of the hero. But actually, someone did make an action figure. Um, He's part of the Almighty's Heroes collection, apparently. Um, People created this. You can even see he's got his little kind of jawbone weapon accessory there, so he can slay the Philistines with those. Um, And what I love, actually my favorite part about this packaging, I think you can zoom in here, it actually says family values there in the corner. I mean, if there's one thing that Samson represents, it isn't family values. I mean, he's uh, murdering people. I mean, this guy is not a guy who stands for family values. In fact, 
um, if you're looking for someone who exhibits family values, you're probably actually better off with Bruce Banner slash the Hulk. Um, and he's probably a better role model for your kids than Samson is. Um, and, and next in our story, our, our sort of almighty hero, Samson, uh, goes and gets himself a Philistine prostitute. So, so parents, if you do happen to buy uh, this, this action figure for your kids, you better go ahead and hide the Barbies um, because... Uh, Samson's now on his way to visit a prostitute down in a Philistine village again. He's got this thing for Philistine women. So 16.1 tells us that he goes down to Gaza and he spends the night with a prostitute. And the Philistines find out he is there and they plan to ambush him in the morning. And the gates of the city are shut and locked. And they're like, we've got him this time. He's not going to be able to escape. We're, we've got him locked into the city. He's going to get up in the morning. This is the time where we get our guy. But Samson doesn't wait till the morning. He gets up in the middle of the night and he goes out of the house and he actually rips the gates out of the ground. And then he carries them for like 40 miles, which I think that part was just showing off. I don't think he really needed to do that. I mean, you could have just set them aside and left. But he's like, hey, you know, I can carry them all the way to Hebron. Um, look at how awesome I am. I mean, this is Samson through and through. And so after this, Samson once again gets entangled with yet another Philistine woman, Delilah. And when the Philistines realize that Samson is in love with Delilah, they conspire with her to find out what is the source of his strength. And like his wife with the riddle, Delilah plies Samson continuously, trying to make him tell him what tell her what the secret of his strength is. And she tries flattery and indignation and nagging, I mean, kind of all these classic tricks. And three times Samson tells her, well, if you do X then, or Y, then, then I'll be helpless. If you tie me up or if you braid my hair or if you... And three times sort of the Philistine, Philistine SWAT team shows up and they break down the door and Samson escapes out of his ropes and, and they are sent running. Three times this happens. And then finally, Delilah, she just resorts to classic emotional manipulation. She just says, how can you say that you love me and keep the secret from me? Like, Samson, you say you love me. How can you say you love me? if you keep the secret from me. And this time Samson gives in. And the text says he tells her his whole heart. He reveals that the secret of his strength is this. He says, if you cut my hair, then you will be powerless. But you get the sense in the story, because Samson's been kind of playing around with this. He's so out of touch with God. You almost get the sense at this point that really either he thinks his strength doesn't come from God, and this is just sort of a story that he's been told by his parents and that he really is just strong and he's going to be able to do this on his own, um, or that he just totally takes it for granted. But she cuts his hair, and the text says he doesn't even realize that the Lord has left him. He doesn't even realize that the Lord has left him. And this time when the Philistines attack, he is actually helpless. Verse 16, 21 says, And the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza, bound him with the bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. So who God uses tells us more about him than them. And who God uses reveals how patient he is with his people. I mean, Israel is a mess. Samson is a mess. And in many ways, Samson's life is a microcosm of Israel's bigger story, of turning away from God, of utterly disobeying him. And in, and in many ways, isn't Samson's story kind of a microcosm? Israel's story is a, is a macrocosm of our own lives. I mean, I think there's a little bit of Samson in each one of us, a tendency towards selfishness, towards recklessness or impulsiveness, of being enslaved to our desires, 
of towards saying one thing and doing another. I love how comedian Louis C.K., I love how honest he is about his beliefs. In one of his stand-up routines, and, and I wouldn't necessarily advise watching Louis C.K., he can kind of go over the line, but he's also brilliant. I think he's one of the most honest people in our culture today. I really do. And this is what he says. He says, I have a lot of beliefs, and I live by none of them. <laughs> I have a lot of beliefs, and I live by none of them. He says, that's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs, and I just like believing them. I, I like that part, he says. They're just my little believies. That's what he says. They make me feel good about who I am, but if they get in the way of the thing I want, I just do what I want. I mean, how many of us are there? I mean, I feel like I'm there, right? I've got my little believies, and they make me feel good, but if they get in way of what I really want, how often do I just do what I want? And yet God is patient with us. He's so patient with his people. He doesn't abandon them, even when they have abandoned him. Whoever God uses, whether it's Samson, whether it's Israel, whether it's you, whether it's me, it always reveals more about who he is, his greatness, his patience, his love, his grace, his mercy, than anything about how deserving or, or good or talented or gifted that we are. When you look at church history, you see that. God has used a lot of broken people throughout church history to do amazing things. It says a lot more about him than about us. You see, God uses antiheroes not because of who they are, but because of who he is. And God says over and over again in the Old Testament, as we continue through open here, you're going to see this. I'm not saving you because you deserve it, Israel. I'm saving you because I'm faithful to my promise. I'm not saving you because you deserve this. I'm not rescuing you because, because somehow you've earned this. But because I'm faithful to what I say I will do. So are you aware this morning of how incredibly patient God is with his people? Of how patient he is with you? Are you thankful for that? Do you rejoice in that? Do you extend that same patience and mercy to other people? Well, now as we come to the end of Samson's story, we see that who God uses reveals his severe mercy. At the end of chapter 16, Samson is blind. His eyes have been gouged out. He's toiling in prison. He's grinding at this mill, just grinding grain. And something begins to happen, though the Lord begins to renew his strength. And again, not because of Samson, not because he's had a change of heart, but because of who God is. And one evening, the Philistine rulers and leaders are gathered together, and they're celebrating their victory over Samson. They, and they, what they want to do is they want to offer a sacrifice to their god, Dagon. And we don't know a lot about Dagon, but this is the god that the Philistines are worshiping. He's the god of the harvest, or maybe of the storm, kind of like Baal. And so they are gathered to offer a sacrifice to Dagon and just have a big party. And once the sacrifice is offered and the party begins and soon the drunken crowd says, why don't we get Samson out here? Let's mock him. Let's make fun of him. Let's let him entertain us, I think the text says. And the verb means to, to laugh at or deride. And, and maybe they want to, some, some commentators say, well, maybe they want him to see him do feats of strength, kind of like a strong man at a circus. But I think it's probably more likely, even given Samson's request at the end, that they want to just mock him because of his blindness, that they want to see him trip and fall, that they want to put stuff in his way, and they just want to mock him for his blindness. And the text says that after he has performed for them, after he's done his little show, that Samson calls on the Lord for a second and final time. And in so doing, and I don't even know how all this works, but in so doing, he demonstrates just the smallest amount of faith, the tiniest amount of faith. And God hears his prayer, and God uses him. 
Listen to this. This is chapter 16, beginning in verse 28. This is God's word. It says, Then Samson called on the Lord, and he said, O God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. And so those whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Those who he killed in his death were more than those who killed in his life. Basically, the author's final assessment of Samson was the best thing that Samson ever did was die. I mean, that's kind of the final word on Samson. The best thing he ever did was just finally die. God hears Samson's prayer, and he takes that tiny grain of faith, and he gives him the strength to destroy his enemies. But remember who God uses says more about him than them. Samson doesn't say anything in his prayer about God's glory. I mean, remember he's set apart to, to glorify God, to rescue his people. All he cares about is, I want to get revenge for my two eyes. It's always about Samson. It's always about him. And yet God still uses him. He still uses him to deliver his people. He brings Samson low. He brings him to the point of utter desperation, of his eyes being ripped out, of him being in prison in order to just bring this tiny little grain of faith to the surface. And remember, if you were here last week with Rahab, we said it's it's not the quality or the quantity of our faith that ultimately matters, but it's the object of our faith. And even all throughout Samson's story, he goes after all these foreign women over and over and over again. He gets entangled with these foreign women, but never once does the text say he goes after foreign gods. He always comes back to Yahweh. He doesn't do a very good job of it. He doesn't have a very strong faith, but he always ends up trusting in Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. So Samson's capture and ultimately his death reveals God's severe mercy in Samson's life. You see, sometimes humiliation can actually save your life. Sometimes humiliation and defeat are actually God's mercy, his severe mercy, the way that he slaps us out of our complacency to realize how desperate we truly are. You see, no matter who we are or what we do, you know, what our position is, we can always run the risk that we begin to see our success at what we're doing as God's endorsement of our lifestyle. That we see that when what our life is working, when, when the bank account is full, when we have what we want, when our business is doing well, that that's God's endorsement of our lifestyle. But we must remember that just because God uses us, just because God uses you, doesn't mean that he approves of you. I mean, Samson's story is such a vivid reminder of that. I love pastor and counselor uh, Paul Tripp points this out powerfully in his book. It's called Dangerous Calling. Um, it's a book written to pastors, but, but anyone could benefit from reading. Actually, I'd, I'd love for all of you to read it just to keep me accountable um, on so many of the warnings that he has in there. And he, sa- he tells his own story of being humbled by God, and he explains that without knowing what I was doing, I took God's faithfulness to me, to his people, to his work of his kingdom, to his plan of redemption, to his church as an endorsement of me. He says, without knowing what I was doing, I took God's faithfulness as an endorsement of me. And then he goes on to write these sobering words. He says, the success of a ministry is always more a picture of who God is than a statement about who the people are that he is using for his purpose. 
the success of a ministry, and, and he uses the word ministry, but fill in the blank, the success of your family, the, the faithfulness of your children, the success of your company is always more a picture of who God is and a statement about the people that he's using for his purpose. Who God uses always says more about him than about them. If there's one thing that the book of Judges clearly reveals, it's that we need a king. We don't just need these warlord judges who have the spirit sometimes to kind of deliver us from our enemies part of the time. Ultimately, we need a king who will not just change what we do, but will change who we are. Will not just change our external actions, but will actually change our affections. And Jesus is that king. He's the king that we long for. He's the king that we celebrate here coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And when you look at Jesus' life, Jesus is the anti-Samson. I mean, Jesus is the complete opposite of Samson. Samson is full of himself. He's arrogant. Jesus empties himself and he's humble. Samson dies getting revenge on his enemies. Jesus dies redeeming others. You see, unlike Samson, God came in Christ to deliver us from our greatest foe, our own self-destructive hearts. And Jesus saves us to the joy of self-forgetfulness. And not only does Jesus die for us, and I think we can't miss this, not only does he die for us, but he sends his Holy Spirit to live within us. Samson got little doses of the Spirit here or there. But if you have trusted Christ, you have the Spirit permanently residing in you enabling you, equipping you to obey, to follow. So this morning as we come to the communion table, let us rejoice in the hope that we have one who has rescued us, who's rescued Samson, who's rescued me, you and me, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. So we celebrate communion here most weeks at the Brookside campus as a tangible reminder of the good news of the gospel, that our sins have been forgiven by the work of Jesus on the cross. In communion, the gospel is made tangible to us. And one of the reasons that we celebrate communion every week is not just because it's a good reminder, but it reminds us that we're not just brains, right? That we're actually people with bodies and stomachs and taste buds and eyeballs who need to have the gospel preached to the whole of who we are. And so when we read God's word and we hear it proclaimed, we use our minds, but when we take communion, we get to experience, taste, and touch the good news of the gospel. So you don't have to be a member of Christ's community to participate in communion. All of you who are here and who are followers of Jesus are welcome at his table. If you're not yet sure where you stand with Christ, I would just invite you to use this time to reflect on who he is, his great patience and his great mercy. So when you come, I mean, we're a smaller group today, so just come in groups. There is gluten-free communion at the station in the back, so if you need that, uh, gluten-free elements are there. Um, there's also communion stations around the room. I don't know if we have servers at all of them today. We do? Okay, great. We have servers. So go to any of those stations that you want. Uh, gather in groups of five or six. Um, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then partake together as a juice, or take together as, as, a, as a group. Um, I normally say you need to exit through certain aisles. We've got a few enough people here. Just exit wherever you want and come back to your seat however you want. It's not going to be an issue this morning. Take your time this morning and enjoy the reminder, the goodness of God's grace, that he is so great that he can use us for his purposes. And not that it says anything great about who we are, but it says everything about how wonderful he is. Come to the communion table and rejoice in that good news this morning.